Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Sharon Hicks author of How Do You Grab a Naked Lady, a memoir that she wrote about her life. And um, Sharon, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming in. Oh, I'm honored to be here, Dr. Kaplan. Thank you. Before we get started, what a wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading it. It was a real exciting read, uh, very provocative. So congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you very much. Let's ask right off the bat, what was your inspiration for writing this book? Tell us a little bit about it. My mother. My mother was arrested over 33 times, mainly for parading around town naked. And I kept notes for years and years, and I always knew I was going to write it. It was just something in me. It was my number one bucket list item. Tell us a bit about your mother. (laughs) She was, (laughs) yeah, she was, she lived out loud. She was very, very smart. You know, when she'd go to the library, she'd come back with books of physics and epistemology and all kinds of different books. She never was a type to go to coffees with the ladies and everything. She'd go up to the university and take classes. So she was always inquiring and thinking about the big issues. But she was in and out of mental hospitals and in and out of jail. And she was diagnosed as bipolar. Mm. In those days, they called it manic depressive, bipolar, with schizophrenic tendencies. And she didn't like taking meds. You know, it made her itch, it made her feel bad, and besides, if you're manic, you're high, why would you want to come down? Right. <laughs> so she... She enjoyed it. She, she said, if I could just ride my lows, she says, I really enjoy the high. A lot of people thought she was drinking, but she wasn't. You gave some very, very colorful illustrations of your mother when she's manic in the book, and it's quite a read. Tell us a little bit more about your mother and who she was, her background, and sort of where she came from. She was born in Utah, very poor. She got an orange for Christmas once, and she saved it and saved it and saved it. When she went to eat it, it was rotten. Mm. I mean, that's how poor they were. She was the only girl of 12 boys, the second youngest. She had a very bad well, I don't know if she didn't even know she was poor, I guess, when you're being raised that way. But her mother used to bake bread to appease the Indians. It would circle the house. They'd run out. She'd run out with hot bread. Wow. So they were way out <laughs> in the boondocks. <laughs> yeah. And then they moved to Los Angeles when she was about 13. And she met my dad at 15. And my dad was a ticket out. You know, he was, mm. he uh, had a car, he had a job. This is depression time. And she thought she really hit the jackpot, and she did. Mm-hmm. He was he was a wonderful man. Tell us a little bit about your childhood with your mom and your dad and your family. Paint a picture for us what that was like for you. And you, you do this very well in your book, so just to give our listeners who are listening to the podcast an idea where you came from. As I was thinking, as I was writing the book, I didn't have too many memories of mother hugging me or asking me how my day is or anything for me. And I didn't know that that wasn't normal. But I would 
kind of compare with my girlfriend's mothers, how warm they were and how they made cookies or how they had store-bought cereal. We never had anything store-bought. My mother made everything from scratch. And today that's very good. (laughs) In those days I thought, well, it would be nice to have some store-bought cereal. But yeah, I remember um, her not being warm. Hmm. Sort of like if we were out of sight, she was better off. So she would lock me in the closet lots of times and just be out of sight. So I learned really fast how to be invisible and not to bother her. Well, not make her mad. So not a lot of affection there. No. And she was sort of in her own world, so to speak. And you felt that you were in her way sometimes. When I was first born, she didn't get out of bed for a year. And it's postpartum, you know, when she had her baby. Mm-hmm. And she just was so depressed. And that was the first time she had her shock treatment. My, mm. my dad took her downtown L.A. Psychiatrist actually just took one look at her. This is my dad's story. Great big Irish redhead. Mm-hmm. A psychiatrist took her and just put her on the couch and gave her her first shock treatment. And then she went home jabbering and talking, and she cooked dinner, and my dad thought, oh, shock treatments are fantastic. And so she had a lot of shock treatments because they seemed to work with her, but she had no civil rights in those days. You know, so not till mid-'80s did the truth in psychiatry come around where a patient had to approve of a shock treatment. But before that, she always said, I don't have any civil rights, you know, Mm -hmm. fine. If I'm manic and feeling good and having fun, I get shocked. Right, and I guess there was some truth to that, too, if they were applying treatment to her that she wasn't consenting to. Right, and then when she felt depressed, she got shocked. So she always said shock treatments, um, I don't know how many she had. Yeah, I think there was a passage in the book someplace where they were recommending lobotomy. Yes. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And my dad couldn't figure how an ice pick to the brain could solve anything. Right, no, it's it's hard (laughs) to imagine that that's the way that uh, people were treated uh, in psychiatry at that time. Did she ever start medications? Was that ever a part of her treatment as she was going through her illness? Yes. Uh, Excuse me. The first time she was really hospitalized was when I was 10 years old, and she went to Mm Kaneohe Mental Hospital, and she did have uh, medication. She came back home like a zombie. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I had to show her how to drive, how to cook dinner, where things were. And you're 10 years old. I'm 10 years old. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that incident? Because that's one of the very (laughs) colorful incidents in the book that you talk about. And then I know you may have a passage that you want to read that relates to that. What do you think? Yeah, uh, the anniversary party was, it's it's very colorful. You know, I've had people talk about making a movie of my book, and they always Mm -hmm. think, well, let's start out with the anniversary party. (laughs) (laughs) I was um, nine then, nine years old, and um, just turning 10. She was planning a huge party for my dad for their anniversary in November. And she was so excited. She planned this big party. And she invited everybody, you know, the mayor, uh, Jay Okohead Papuli in those days, it was on radio. She, like, well, in those days, you know, Hawaii was only, population was less than 300,000 or something, as it is like today. So where we lived, it was like country out in Kalaniani Hard to imagine that being country. I know. It was only three (laughs) lanes. But she was so excited about this new house my dad just built on on the water, on the ocean. And so she invited all these people she could think of. 
some friends were very concerned because she wasn't doing anything for the party. She was just inviting people. My dad's very close friend told my dad, there's a party coming up. Mm-hmm. So my dad invited Dr. Pasquitz. His name is Doc Pasquitz, who's also a very colorful character. And he came to the party as a friend of my dad's. And uh, he was just observing. But at one time, my mother came out in at the party with a white negligee, all see-through. Uh-huh. And she would always carry a teddy bear, and she'd go up to everybody and hug them and kiss them. Then she'd go back into her bedroom and change, and she came out with a blink, pink one. She did this three times. It was a white, pink, and black negligee. She kept changing. She kept having showers. She kept doing all these things. So the Dr. Pasquitz took myself and my brother next door, and he said, I want to talk to you kids because in a few minutes, there's going to be an ambulance. There's going to be men in white coats, and they're going to come and get your mother, and we're going to take her to Kaneohe Mental Hospital. And I didn't quite understand what he was talking about, but then he said, your mother is sick. And that really did something for me. I held that the rest of my life. My mother's sick. Mm. So if she's sick, like cancer or anything else, she'll get better. I was so excited. There was an answer. She's sick. Mm-hmm. So I kind of hung on to that my whole life. So we went back to the party, and there came the ambulance and the men in the white coats. And they strapped her down, and she was just screaming and yelling. She had no civil rights. This is her party, her house. What were they doing there? And she kept telling my dad she's going to divorce them, and she can't stand them. And, you know, this is the anniversary party. Right. (laughs) She wants a divorce. Anyway, they take her off to Kaneohe, and that was so traumatic. So prior to this anniversary party where you found out that your mom was sick, what did you think about your mom? Like, you, you saw her antics, you saw her behavior. Like, what was that like for you? I thought she was having fun. She was the life of the party. Mm-hmm. And by the way, she was beautiful. If you had to think about an actor in those days, it'd probably be like an Ava Gardner type mm-hmm. of a look. She had dark hair, but a perfect body and beautiful long legs. And she knew she was pretty and she was talented and she was smart. So when there was a party, she was the life of the party. Like she said, Tom Parkhouse next door likes to, likes to dance with me, but he has something in his pocket, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know is that a gun in your pocket? Yeah, yeah. so she's real racy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is very apparent when you read the book. Yeah, so she, she loved dancing with guys and flirting with him, and she had a beautiful voice, very talented. And I just thought I had the, you know, the, a mother that was uh, popular. Mm-hmm. She didn't wear those regular shirt-lined dresses like a leave-it-to-beaver type mother, not at all. She was very racy, fashionable, a little wild. You saw that as this is just mom. There's nothing really wrong with her. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she wasn't very affectionate. She made it very clear that she was the most important person in the world for herself, and you felt a bit neglected by her. Then she goes to Kaneohe, and you had a, an epiphany at that point. Right. Or, yeah. yeah, let's hear that passage if you don't mind okay, reading sure. it. sure. Tell us a little bit about what's going on here. Okay, this is after they've strapped her to the gurney and taken her off to Kaneohe. The house remained quiet and somber, filled with mother's absence. Once in a while I thought it was all a dream, the disjointed way it all unfolded, the way it felt like it was underwater the whole time, but it wasn't a dream, it was real. Dad and I piled into the car and drove to Kaneohe State Mental Hospital to see Mother. It had been three days since the anniversary party. 
We didn't talk about it much, but I knew Dad's heart was breaking. He was lost without her. On the other hand, I was hopeful and relieved that she was sick. I couldn't stop smiling and chattering incessantly. What do you think she'll be like? Do you think she'll hug me? Ask how I'm doing? What will the doctors say? Will she be able to come home with us today? Everything will be okay now, won't it? I was just full of promises. I held Dr. Pasquet's promise in my hands with a death grip. It had, he had said that she would be cured, and I believed him. How could it be any different? I didn't ask Dad those questions. I usually didn't say anything at all because Dad looked tense. I decided that I must be a comfort to him rather than a burden like my mother. As the questions tumbled around in my mind like gleeful puppies, I sat quietly and folded my hands in my lap. I glanced out the car window and was struck by the beauty of the day, the way the sun shone in the clear blue sky, the way the blue waves turned to white foam as they crashed along the beach along black lava. We drove by Hanama Bay and then through Makapu and Waimanalo. As we turned into a long drive that led to the hospital toward the Ko'olau Mountains rising like green pillars behind the hospital shrouded in gray mist, one more question joined the fray. Will she love me now? Excuse me. <laughs> mm-hmm. sure. I can't tell exactly when it happened. It probably wasn't any one particular moment, but rather a slow meander toward the realization that my mother didn't really love me, not in the way other mothers love their daughters. I knew this, though very carefully observations. There were no hugs, no kisses, no warm hands rubbing slow, lazy circles around my back when I was sick or in need of comfort. There was, quite frankly, no apparent concern for me at all. I was simply in the way. Now I understood she was sick, and maybe the sickness in her head also made her sick in her heart. It wasn't that she didn't want to love me. It was that she didn't know how because she was sick, and Dr. Pasquitz had promised to fix that. My first thought when I saw her was, there's been a horrible mistake. Something is terribly wrong. Someone messed up. Her fingers were curled around the aluminum chain-length fence that bordered a green, grassy area of the hospital. Her hair was matted, her hospital gown tattered and strained, eyes wild and sharpened. This was not the mother I had imagined. This was not what Dr. Pasquitz had promised. Mother spotted us and rattled the fence. I swallowed my disappointment so hard my throat hurt. I pulled Dad's hand. I didn't want to go inside. There would be others like her in there. This was not what I came to see. Hey, she yelled, shitheads. She loved to say shitheads. (laughs) Fear pulsed through me. Dad's face dropped. This was not what he came to see either. Mother hiked up her tattered hospital gown. Look at this. Someone fucking bit me. She pointed to her upper thigh, which was black and blue and indented with a neat row of teeth marks. We left her hanging on the fence and entered the hospital. Dad and I walked down hallways through double doors, down more hallways, past other patients who were shuffling and mumbling and chattering and smacking the sides of their heads with their hands. My eyes fixed to the cold linoleum floor. I was afraid to look at these people. I wish I could tuck and fold myself until I was small enough to hide in Dad's pocket. I was suddenly in the grips of an irrational fear that I might someday end up in a place like this. Wow, so powerful, Sharon. What an experience to, I mean, that must have been devastating for you to 
see your mother with all the hopes of her being cured and things being different and then finding her like that. I know. She also bragged about being the queen at, at Kaneohe. She had a handmade crown and she made yeah. it out of paper. And it was all about her. Yeah. She didn't say, how are you? How's things at the house? Nothing. It was all about what she was doing at the hospital and she was so proud of it. So this was 10 years old? Yeah. 10 years Ten. old. Was this your first experience of seeing that she could possibly change or be different and then being having your hopes dashed about that? Well, interesting. I never thought she was sick until Dr. Pasquitz told me. I thought she was just different. And then when I realized she was sick, I thought, oh, gosh, she's going to get better. Yeah, that theme comes up quite a bit in your book. There's several points where it seems that you're hoping she'll finally... Something will click with her. Mm -hmm. Things will be different with her somehow. But you describe it, I guess, as sort of this nagging feeling or worry that it's all going to happen again, these episodes that she has. You just never knew when I came home from school or how, how she was going to be. There was no stability. So she had these manic episodes and depressive episodes too, I imagine. What was she like between them? Was she more of a stable person for your life in some way? Or what was the relationship like when she wasn't in one of her episodes? I just found out when I was writing the book that she's also narcissistic. Her last psych- I met with her last psychiatrist, Dr. Amjadi, and he told me that, by the way, your mother was also narcissistic. Mm-hmm. But when I was young, I thought that was part of the illness that she was that way. So I thought she was just sick. But so when she had her in-between times and you think she might be normal, she really wasn't either because she was narcissistic. I didn't put that together till I was much older. So the narcissism would be more like a, like a personality disorder yeah. where she was really just focused on her own stuff and not able to really empathize so much with what was going on with other people. Yeah, I used to tell her, you, you can't even put yourself in somebody else's shoes. You yeah. know, if a neighbor needed help or if anybody needed help, there was just no, no, nothing there. Let's get into your teenage years a little bit. What were things like for you as a teenager in your family environment? My brother left for college when I was in the ninth grade. So I was an only child, really, from ninth grade on to twelfth grade. I was popular, I guess. I liked everybody. I didn't like cliques. So I had lots of friends. But I never brought anybody really home to see my mother. <laughs> yeah. Was that that on purpose? Yes. But at the same time, she could be so much fun with my friends. She also could act and, and be fun. Because she would ask the most interesting questions. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like any other mom. Was, she would get right deep into somebody, you know. Like mm-hmm. I remember bringing a home, a boy, a home once, and uh, I was in my teenage years, and he was somebody I was dating, and right off the bat, she says, "You look like you're gay." Mm. You know, <laughs> that she, would be okay, but it would just came out of her mouth, you know. So. Right, she would blurt out whatever was on her mind. Exactly, yeah. and you, so you never knew. One of the interesting stories that you talk about was the homecoming. Oh yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and? how that related to your relationship with your mom? Right. I went to Roosevelt High School. Punahou was our biggest rival, and we were so excited to have a big game. We had already been champions for two years in a row, and we were going to beat Punahou. We were going to be champions for three years in a row. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt never had a homecoming queen before. 
they decided it was time, and I was nominated the homecoming queen. And I was so excited to not only be the homecoming queen, but the very first, and at a game where I knew we were going to be Punahou, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was wanting my mother to help me get a dress because it was at the old stadium. Uh, Schuler had a Cadillac car company, and they had a carriage inside their company, a horse carriage, that I got to ride that around the... I was going to ride that around this old stadium with a horse. It was mm -hmm. going to be really extravagant. I was so excited. I'm only 16 at the time, so I didn't. I graduated when I was 17, so I was very young to be a senior. Was we were sitting at the table, and Mother says, um, "By the way, I have, I'm having a necklace made." And I says, "What are you talking about?" She says, "Well, it's going to be the title of my next book." And I said, well, what's the title of your next book? And she said, "The title's fuck. And I says, what do you mean? Well, you know, F is for, and she says, U is you, and she'd point to me. And she said, C is C, and she'd point to her eyes. And K is clearly, Sharon, everything is so fucking clear, you know. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table. And I thought, I was thinking, she really is smart. To take those letters and make it like that. So she says, I'm having a necklace made with F-U-C-K right across my chest. And I'm going to wear that. That's the title of my next book. Come on, we're going to go pick it up at Liberty House. So we get in the car and we drive down Kalaniani And like I said, in those days, there's only three lanes. And the, she just went right down the middle lane. I, I imagine this. <laughs> you're you're seeing that this is another one of her episodes that's in process here when this is yes, going on. Yes, I was scared to death because yeah. you know how I could tell when I was little is her eyes. They would uh -huh. dart, uh -huh. and they would pierce. And I thought, oh, here it comes. She had this stance about her, and she was just so sure of herself, and she was just so out there, you know. So we're driving over to the, to the department store, and she would go into the fine jewelry department. It's where Macy's is right now, you know. Right, the old Liberty House. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the fine jewelry department is between the es escalators. So I, I was kind of hiding behind some clothes, but she went right up to the to the fine jewelry department, and she said, looking for my necklace, you know. And, well, Mrs. Hicks, the lady, says, management would not let us make it. She got <laughs> so mad. She went up the escalator, and she threw off her muumuu. Oh. And she never wore underwear. Uh -huh. You know, there was nothing on there. And she drove, and she rode the escalator down over the fine jewelry department. So she's naked in Liberty naked. House, coming down the escalator, <laughs> back and forth, going back and forth. Oh, boy. And she loved it. She was having a f lots of fun and the swearing and the thing. And then all of a sudden, there was a guard at one end, the bottom. And then she looked at him. She went, "Go back up." And there was a guard at the other end, and one of them yelled, "How do you grab a naked lady?" And as I was telling this story at a writing workshop. Someone said, Sharon, that's your title. Yeah. <laughs> that's yep. your title. And then I had another review said, it's not really how do you grab a naked lady. It's how do you grab a hold of mental illness? How do you how do you live with it? How do you get a hold of it? Sure. It's so slippery. It slips and it slides and it, you know, how do you handle it? Yeah, she she was an unpredictable, slippery kind of person who right. you couldn't quite put your finger on, right? <laughs> yeah. she, but of course, I was. I wanted to be excited. I was on, even on the front page of news. You know, this was a big deal. But it was all about her, yeah, and her necklace, yeah. and Liberty Health. And then, of course, they came and arrested her. And back to the homecoming then. And I, we won't spoil it about how they grabbed the naked lady. They'll have to read the book <laughs> okay. to figure that one out. 
But back to the homecoming. So that was a hard experience for you. This was shortly after the Liberty House incident, right? Mm -hmm. Sharon, getting back to the homecoming incident, I know that that was a really difficult period in your life. We were talking a little bit about that uh, just earlier. And you have a passage in the book that's just a really wonderful illustration about what that was like for you. Uh, I was wondering, would you be willing to read that part? Of course. Yeah. I will love to read it. Roosevelt High School scored another touchdown. The crowd roared, clapped their hands, and stomped their feet. Money changed hands under the bleachers of the Honolulu Stadium. The air buzzed. The fans were wild. Another city championship for three years, and best yet, beating our rival, Punahou School. I waited nervously with a homecoming court beneath the wooden bleachers that led to the locker rooms. It was almost halftime. The girls in the homecoming court were fidgeting and swishing their layers of crinolines, their faces split wide with smiles, flushed with excitement. My stomach morphed into hard stone. I couldn't focus. I blinked, but it didn't help, so I blinked again. And still the world looked like a Picasso painting from the Cubist period, everything disjointed and not aligned. What is wrong with me? Finally, I was not invisible, yet to be invisible was the thing I wanted at that moment, a double-edged sword. My desire to be seen and not seen at the same time was such a desperate act of self-preservation. Another touchdown, another roar, another wave of numbness washed over me. I felt like I was sleepwalking underwater, faces twisted and contorted into great big clown smiles, conversations distorted out of sync with mouths that curves around invisible words. I closed my eyes. The sun shining on the football field was too bright. Images of mother's naked body on the escalator toppled me. I was spinning, reeling, falling into a dark hole down, down, down. I clenched my jaw to restrict the flow of tears. All I wanted was some attention from her, some acknowledgement. I wanted to know for once that I mattered to her. But it had been so hard to hold it together long enough to cheer for me as homecoming queen. A small sob escaped. Then I heard the clatter of football cleats as a team brushed past me and into the locker room. Hands pushed, shoved, and guided us to the stadium field and to the sunlight. The crowd roared its approval. Pat Tyler, the first runner-up, stepped forward to her beautiful strapless dress, her skirt flowing from her tiny waist, buoyed up by millions of crinolines. She flashed a gleaming smile and waved. The crowd cheered. I stood, said, I stood next to Pat in an ugly, mousy brown sarong that was twisted around my waist and chest. With mother's hospitalization, there had been no time to buy a special dress for me. My cheeks flushed hot with embarrassment. I felt exposed and ridiculous. Right there in Honolulu Stadium, sitting in a horse and carriage by myself, staring at a horse's ass as it trotted around the field in front of thousands of roaring, cheering football fans. I disappeared by degrees into nothingness. Wow, so powerful. I'm really struck by that passage. I think it's a great example of what you talk about throughout the book, about feeling like always in the shadow of mom and her antics and her dramatics and not having a space for yourself there. Right. And I, I saw Pat several years later, Pat Tyler, and she had read my book. Uh-huh. And she apologized to me for wearing a better dress. Oh, no. <laughs> she said, Sharon, I had no idea. And I, you know, but, and it was real cute. But, uh, yeah, her dress was so beautiful. 
something I should have been wearing. So she didn't have any idea what you were oh, going no, through. No. And I'm also struck by your mom not being there. This was your day right. to shine. And not only did she help you get the dress for you, but she did this thing in Liberty House, becoming naked and drawing all the tension to herself. And that sort of threw everything off for you once again. And what strikes me too in writing the book, I, I was always going to write a book about her. She is out loud. She had all the stories. I was invisible and I was in behind the scenes. It's always going to be about her. And then in the writing, I turned it to a daughter and mother's story and how I related to her illness, and that turned out to be better. So I did have some value, but growing up, I didn't think I did. Let's move on to the next phase in your life. I noticed that there were sort of like three sections of the book that made sense to me. There's the early childhood years through your teenage years. There's the period after you leave home, and that's what we're getting into now. And we'll talk later about what the later years were like around mother's death and you coming to terms with that. So tell us what it was like after high school. I escaped. I was accepted to the University of Hawaii, but I told my dad I didn't. I wanted to get out of Hawaii. I went to Whittier College mm -hmm. in California. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by escaped. I was home alone for four years with my parents because my, my older brother was in college for those years. And I just felt like I had to get away from lots of things, but mm -hmm. mainly mother, mm -hmm. the ups and downs, because I never knew what she was going to be like when I came home from school or, or how she was going to do anything. So I just wanted some stability, some normal, be around normal people, whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> So going to college to me was going where normal people went. So you had some concept that maybe becoming an adult, you could separate from your mom and yes. all of the drama that you had to deal with with her growing up. Oh, the white picket fence, you know, leave it to Beaver and yeah. and uh, all that stuff and be a mom and want to marry the right person and have the right family and live in the right house in the right neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> It was just it was a fantasy, but I went for it. So what was it like for you leaving home then? And starting college? I actually was scared. I was mm -hmm. 17 and I wound up in the hospital before going to college. I went to visit my grandma in Oregon and I just collapsed. I couldn't get out of bed. They took me to the hospital and I think it was just nerves but mm -hmm. they thought I need my appendix out or something. My dad said no no no. I think she just might have colitis. I went to school very thin and very emaciated and just trying to be invisible. Trying to be invisible yeah. at school. Yeah. What, but at the same time, I, I was popular. I don't know how that worked. You said that about high school. Yeah, that you were, you I were popular. <laughs> I, I, I just, I think I was kind. I was kind to people. Yeah. And I liked people. But at the same time, I wanted to be invisible. Well, you met your first husband around that time. Right. My roommate introduced me to him. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, because I know that that is another important phase in your life that you talk about. Right. I did date other people at Whittier, and I often think if I'd only had, you know, but I wasn't. Mm. But my roommate introduced me to someone she went to high school with. He was at the Cal Berkeley, majoring in pre-dental. He mm -hmm. wanted to be a dentist. He's always wanted to be a dentist. It's like in eighth grade, I'm going to be a dentist. So we met, my freshman year, I met him towards the end. And I took him home with me um, 
during that summer. You wrote a passage about this in your book. Is that a part that you'd like to share? Oh, sure. So I'm home for the summer. I'm home in Hawaii from Whittier College. I'm home from the summer, and I'm saying, Mother, Dad, I finally found the man I want to marry. His name is Ronald. He's a pre-dental student. As I mentioned of pre-dental, Dad cheered, A professional man. Wow, a professional in the family. But I said, we'll have to wait seven years to get married until Ronald graduates from dental school. We're only sophomores in college now. My dad frowned. Why wait to marry? You can get married in a year. A year is long enough to get to know someone. But Ronald goes to school at Berkeley. That's in Northern California. When will we see each other? Dad shook his head. Listen, Susie. He liked to call me Susie. You invite Ronald here so we can meet him. If you and Ronald want to get married, I'll pay for all your expenses. I mean everything, all your living and college expenses for you and Ronald for as long as it takes, including Ronald's dental school. We want to make sure Ronald becomes a professional man. Dad squeezed my shoulder and he said, you'll never have to worry about money. My little girl will never have to struggle. I wrapped my arms around him and he said, how does that sound, Susie? Well, it sounded like he bought me a husband, but I didn't complain. (laughs) I would finally build a life of my own, one that didn't involve fuck necklaces or trips to mental institutions or mother running naked in department stores, a life that Dad wanted for me, for himself. Dad was so proud of me, he couldn't stop smiling. My stomach did flip-flops, backwards somersaults, and handsprings. I wasn't sure I wanted to do this. I was too young. I was only 19. I needed more time. I should have told Dad, but everything was planned. It was disastrous to even cancel it this time. All those guests, all the food, impossible. We had passed the point of no return. I turned to my mother. Is this a good idea? Normally, I wouldn't dare to ask her, but as her daughter, I desperately wanted the guidance and comfort of my mother. Just a few days earlier, I had showed her my diaphragm. I hoped she would show me how to use it properly and compliment me on the woman I'd become. Instead, she laughed. It's so small, Sharon. She showed me hers, which was a lot bigger. Now, this is a real diaphragm for a real woman. Even as I felt any last vestiges of hope that we would connect, as mother and daughter disintegrates like ash all i could think was holy shit what does she have a cavern (laughs) (laughs) mother mother fluffed the edges of my dress straightened my veil oh it'll be fine sharon ronald's a good man he has ambition drive he's perfect don't worry everything will be fine i wasn't convinced is that why you married dad because he had ambition Well, I married your father because he had his own car. It was the middle of the Depression. I was miserable at home. He was my ticket out of there. Then she leaned forward and said in a low voice directly in my ear, and he ate my pussy. (laughs) I figured anyone who did that must really love me. She enunciated each word slowly and told me she was on the edge, which told me she was on the edge of manic flight. Probably not today, maybe not tomorrow, not soon. By that time, Mother and Dad would be home in Hawaii, and I'd be a newlywed with my new husband. Mother slipped my arm through my dad's elbow. Dad patted my hand. I thought I was going to cry. Dad winked at me. Then the church doors opened. Wow, what a story. (laughs) Uh, Gosh. wedding day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A lot of, it sounds like a lot of, a lot of, mixed and conflicted feelings here around the whole thing with Ronald. Yeah, I was very young. Yeah, and it sounds like there was a part of you that 
really wanted to escape into some feeling of normalcy. On the other hand, I didn't get the sense that your heart was really in this. Felt some pressure from your parents. You had a desire to escape. There were a lot of forces at play here, Mm -hmm. shaping the decision you were making. I didn't even feel I was making a decision. Uh Right. I just felt like I was going along with the flow. Yeah. Yeah. My dad wanted me to marry somebody who's going to be a professional man. He's going to pay for it, you know. And I, I just felt like walking down the aisle at that church was such a long aisle. Mm-hmm. And I felt many times to tell my dad, I want to turn back. Yeah. <laughs> tell us a little bit about the relationship with Ronald. What happened during this period of your life for you? It didn't turn out like I thought. Mm-hmm. When we were first married, both went to Long Beach State. He came down from Cal Berkeley, and I went from Whittier to Long Beach State. It was University of California at Long Beach now. And we lived very close to the school in apartments. And somebody invited us over for cocktails. And, of course, I'm still just 18 at that time. And I'm thinking, wow, this would be fun. You know, we were so grown up. I'm sorry, I was 19 at that time. And I didn't, I couldn't go. I was sick. Mm-hmm. And I was holding my tummy. And I was just, just in really in a lot of pain. And he got mad. How could he tell them no? What is he going to tell them? They invited us, and we're not going. And that's when he really hit me really hard. Mm. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm on the floor. It's amazing. I always felt so sick. Mm-hmm. And him coming after me, I just darted out. I don't know where I got the energy, but I darted out of the door, and I'm running out of the neighborhood with just my with no shoes on, just barefoot, not knowing where to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go, but his wrath was really bad. Yeah, so I got the sense from reading about that relationship that here's a situation where you were in where you didn't have a whole lot of voice in what was happening to you mm-hmm. in your life. I'm seeing that as maybe a repeating theme in the relationships that you had that you talk about. And, you know, his mother knew it, and she kept saying, Sharon, he's going through a lot of stress. You know, he's got a go to dental school he's doing you know a lot of stress poor boy i still didn't think it was right Mm -hmm. but i didn't know how to tell my dad how do you tell your dad after he spent in those days five thousand dollars for a wedding was a lot of money and all the things he's paying for us he wrote checks every month and bought us a brand new pontiac you know how do you turn around and tell your dad this isn't working (laughs) i don't want this right i didn't want to disappoint him because my mother always disappointed him and Mm -hmm. i was never going to disappoint my dad Mm -hmm. that was my mantra i wasn't going to be like her and i was never going to disappoint him so there's another force at play here in your personality not wanting to be like your mom, not wanting to disappoint dad. Dad was really important to you. You felt bad for him for what he had to put up with mom. And so being in this relationship to make him happy was another part of it. Right. Big part of it. Yeah. And I know, and later on when he passed away, he looked up from the bed, the hospital bed, and he said, Sharon, you're the only one in my life that has never disappointed me. Mm. So my dad dying, I guess, relieved me from that relationship, which is kind of sad. Uh-huh. So he, he basically relieved you by saying he wasn't disappointed in yeah, you, whatever okay, you would yeah. do. Yeah. I fulfilled that. Now I could, I'm free to divorce. What was the next step for you after you left Ronald? I hooked up with a next-door neighbor. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that literally. Right. <laughs> he was right next door. He was going through a divorce, and we started dating. And it was... Uh, so easy. Mm-hmm. 
I knew that was wrong from the beginning too, but I didn't know how to get out of it. I got pregnant right away. Mm-hmm. And he told me he couldn't have children. His wife told me he couldn't have children. It was like leaving him. That's why she was leaving him. And then I get pregnant. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> then I go to my grandma in Oregon and I said, I don't know what to do. And she was, she's a Pentecostal. She was a holy roller type. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked when she said, Sharon, just get an abortion. Because I said, I can't. Mm-hmm. So I married him and had a beautiful son that I adore today. You know, you just mm-hmm. can't forget that. Mm-hmm. Sure. But he was abusive, too. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what that relationship was like for you. It was awful because when I married him, I already had two girls mm-hmm. by Ronald. They were only one and three. And then I married Big Daddy. I call him Big Daddy because he was very, very short, maybe five foot three, mm-hmm. and acted like he had a, a Hitler complex, I guess I call it. What do you call it? The, the Napoleonic big, complex. The Napoleonic, Napoleonic complex. <laughs> small but yeah. commanded an yeah, army. Yeah, <laughs> and he was always right. Yeah. And he was so mean to my daughters, just abusive. Mm-hmm. One verbally and, and some hint of sexual or the other. But I didn't know that till later. We turned around and had two boys. I just couldn't take his abuse anymore and I left him too Mm -hmm. and I couldn't figure out why I'd married two men that hit me I just couldn't figure it out there was a part of me always that I wanted to be a PhD Mm -hmm. there was a part of me that really wanted to be an out not outspoken but a professor you were studying philosophy, philosophy right yeah and I loved it and I loved asking questions. I loved getting people to ask questions. I really, part of me wanted to, so I'm going, I'm getting my master's in philosophy at Washington U. And Ronald is going to St. Louis Medical mm-hmm. School. And I got pregnant the first semester. Um, I was doing a thesis or a review on Anna Karenina from Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. I loved that book and I was all excited about it, but I couldn't get out of bed. I really had a bad pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then my dad said, why are you even going to college? You know, you don't have to worry, you know. I was raised with a double standard, you know, that I was just be home and be happy. Mm-hmm. So I, I did finally quit. Mm-hmm. But I always think about that. There's this period of time then you have these two marriages and time that you're spending on the mainland, that you were in, on the mainland with both of the men and when you had the your children was there. What's going on with your mom during this period of time? My dad divorced her, and that really triggered her. Mm. It was awful. So when I'm going to college, I just graduate. uh, Ronald and I just graduate from Long Beach State. My mother and dad came over for the graduation, and they were renting in like a nice motel place, and she wouldn't come out of the motel room, and she just wouldn't come out, wouldn't come out, and she kicked my dad out. So my dad was living, Ron and I had been married for two years, so he was living, staying with us. We couldn't get her help. We couldn't, she just would refuse to, she would call all over. She called the President of the United States, and she'd talk Mm. to the flies on the wall. And finally, I had to go over there, and the men in the white coats were behind me, and knock on her door and say, Mother, would you see me? And she says, oh, no, I'm having such a wonderful time. I don't want to talk to you. I hate your dad. And, and what she did say, which I'll never forget, I just had the biggest shit I ever had, and I know <laughs> I know it's getting rid of him. It just feels so good. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with any of you. Uh-huh. 
And finally, she, I got her to open the door, and the men rushed in, and they took her to Long Beach Memorial and to a secured section where they locked her in. It was all gated. You know, she couldn't get out, but she did. Mm. And the Long Beach Memorial calls us and say, we don't know how she got out, but we don't even know where she is. So my dad and I are panicking because L.A. is a big place. So we're visualizing her in a muumuu with nothing on underneath, running mm -hmm. around. We don't know where. And finally, she calls she, she calls a brother, and she's in San Fernando Valley. So that's quite a distance, Long Beach to San Fernando Valley. And she calls and said, she's in a hotel room, and she's having so much fun. And finally, one of the brothers uh, finds her. And we get a hold of her, and we take her to L.A. Memorial. That's the first time I've seen her in front of a judge. Mm -hmm. She was there for observations for a few days. We went to visit, and it was so bad. Visualized a 1950s mental hospital, like mm -hmm. everything was gray. It was like a dungeon. Really, it was. It was awful. Mm -hmm. go into, it was like going into her cell, but I know it was her bedroom, and she had paintings and stuff all over the wall. She had taken stuff and chalks and colors and crayons and she just thought it was a masterpiece you know and then she said she met mother mary there mm -hmm. and she's going to be saved and all that but when we went to the courtroom she came in and she was shuffling mm -hmm. she just was in a different world mm -hmm. i guess it was the drugs they gave her because yeah. they really brought her down because she was higher than a kite when she went in and that's when i heard a judge say she's Manic depressive with schizophrenic tendencies. Mm -hmm. I never heard of a, a diagnosis like that. Mm -hmm. And that she does need help. Mm -hmm. So she was committed and taken to a Westwood Hospital in Los Angeles. And that was a beautiful place. It was Hearst's girlfriend. I can't think of her name now. Marion, uh, Marion something. She was a star. He had a girlfriend. Mm hmm Hearst did, Randolph Hearst, and he gave her this place in Holly, in Westwood, California, and it was a beautiful, when you walk in, it was a, a Mexican style, or a nice courtroom in the middle, and mother was there in another secured area, and this doctor, Dr. Helen I'll never forget, he said, like Dr. Pasquitz, we're going to cure her, we're going to mm. use psychoanalysis, we're going to get to what's really bothering her, and I was so excited, again, mm -hmm. What am I, 21 at this time? Mm -hmm. This is real exciting. So, And then my dad was paying at that time like $1,000 a day. You know, I don't know, it was something extravagant because it was a real exclusive mental place, mm -hmm. sanitarium, I don't know what you would call it. But then we go one day, and uh, the doctor says, uh, Harold, i got to talk to you. And he grabs him, and I go and visit with my mother. And my mother looking at me, and she's giggling and laughing and I says what happened just oh I got caught last night and I said what are you talking about just the night nurse and myself we were doing it we were uh -huh. having so much fun because she had 24 hour watch that's how scary she was to mm -hmm. she, she, she escape so my dad paid 24 hours so the night nurse was in bed with her and she said I was so mad because they caught us before he could come I was really upset oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know what to say you know, so I'm just sitting there with her, waiting for my dad. So my dad comes in. He sits across from her and just looks at her. And then as we were leaving, I'll never forget it, the big high walls of the, of the hospital. He just looks at me and he says, Sharon, I can't do it anymore. Mm. And I says, what do you mean? I said, I just don't have that feeling for her as a wife. I looked at her today and the, like a sister or mm -hmm. a cousin or 
there was just nothing there. I said, I've had it. I can't take this anymore because she's always screwing somebody. Mm-hmm. And he said, they gave her a pill to make her period come. Their hospital's very upset, but I, I, just, I just have to get a divorce. I'm so sad that I have to leave her with you and your brother. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what else to do. How did you feel about that? I told him, go ahead and have a great life. Uh-huh. So you felt for your dad? Yeah. yeah. I said, well, great dad. I said, yeah. it has to, it, he was in such pain every time she'd be carted off to a hospital mm-hmm. or jail. Yeah, it must have been heart-wrenching yeah. for, for everybody. They were married 28 years. Yeah. I don't know how he did it. You had these two marriages that were very difficult for you. And mom came, it sounds like she came in and out of the picture while you were there, this one time when she was hospitalized, and then your dad decided to divorce her at that point. And then you make it back to Hawaii and spend, I guess, from that point to where you are now, you've been back in Hawaii since right. then. Yeah. <laughs> so it was apparent from the book, at least from my perspective, that you matured a lot and started gaining some, I, some personal insights, it seemed like. I don't know if I'm quite putting that right, but I'd be interested to hear later on in your life from that point when you returned to now and writing the book, how did you digest and deal with all of this about your mom? What was that like for you? Well, the- interestingly, I never thought her illness affected me. Mm-hmm. I put it to one side. I always thought she was crazy and I'm perfect. Yeah. You know, I was homecoming queen. Also, my high school chose me most ideal. I mean, I was perfect. Uh-huh. <laughs> you were good <laughs> at being perfect. I was. Oh, yeah, I was good at being perfect. In fact, I never had any failed marriages, never mm-hmm. failed in my life. You mm-hmm. know, they, it, it's them that screwed up, not me, sure. you know. And, I, and so I never thought it affected me. So I came back with three children. My, I left my oldest there to go to college, came back with three of my children, single, working mom, my dad's dream for me, never having to work, never did work. Because mm-hmm. when I divorced Ronald and left my marriages, I didn't get much. My second husband didn't have much. I had more than he did. I was on my own. First thing I wanted to do is get a job and support these three kids. So it makes you stronger, but I rose to the occasion. Mm. This is not going to get me down. Mm-hmm. And I felt a lot of strength and being by myself and being able to make my own decisions. This might be a pompous thing to say, but I always felt I was smarter than my husband's. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to show it because I couldn't outdo them. They are the bread givers. They bring home the money. I didn't feel like I could say how smart I was or talk about things. So I read a lot of books on my own and kept quiet to myself. Yeah, I got the sense that your husbands needed to feel like they were the powerful people in the relationship and they were in charge and they needed to be worshipped for (laughs) everything that they did. And that was sort of your job to do that. Yes. And then when they came home from work, the house was clean. Mm -hmm. The kids had been fed. They'd been bathed. They're in their pajamas. Everything is done, you know. One of these themes that, and I think you mentioned it on several occasions, is, is feeling invisible. And I get the sense that in the latter part of your life, you started to come out of your shell there. So is that what we're talking about, feeling invisible? Like, what more can you say about that? Yes, well, I learned that as a very young age, to be invisible. Mm-hmm. And in several ways, not to anger my mother, not to get her upset. Maybe if I was good and she wouldn't get manic or depressed, you know, so I had to watch that. 
also going to school in Hawaii as a young Haole girl, you don't make waves, you don't ask mm-hmm. questions, you don't act smart, mm-hmm. you don't, you don't, you're not cocky, and you don't want to get in fights. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of that was going on. So I just kind of, and, and my brother was a star. He was a golden boy. And that was told to me when I was very, very young. So I just kind of hid that and to support my dad and be perfect for him. So this would be a good example of how you didn't realize until later in life how your upbringing and your relationships with your mother and your parents affected you. But this need to be invisible, the feeling of not wanting to make waves, to be the perfect person, that was obviously a major effect that they had on you. Yeah, and I didn't think that until I wrote the book. First, I thought I was perfect. And then I thought I did everything right. And when I was writing the book, I thought, wait a minute. There is more to me than being, I'm not perfect, which was a relief. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> not perfect. You don't want to have to be perfect. <laughs> no, that takes a lot of energy. <laughs> yes, that's right. No, so I'm not perfect. And there are parts of mother that are like, that I'm alike. I'm like her in so many ways. Not that I honor it, but I, I relish it. I hang on to it. Cause, yeah, like what ways do you like your mother? Well, my inquiring mind. Uh-huh. Um, wanting, she was obsessed with knowing, wanting the truth about life. She was a card-carrying, what do they call it, hemlock society. You mm-hmm. know, uh, Socrates drank the hemlock. And there's such a thing as a hemlock society that when the time comes, you're going to drink your own hemlock. Mm-hmm. She had her, She was proud of that. And uh, interesting about that one point is when she was getting ready to die, I said, okay, now's the time to take the hemlock. (laughs) And she said, oh, no, Sharon, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I thought that was very interesting. But she was an interesting lady because she wasn't involved in the mundane things about how to wear makeup, things like that. She loved fine jewelry and she loved fine things, but it was more about the mind. She would see somebody walk down the street, and if they were slumping, she'd say, oh, my gosh, look at them. They're slumping. They need to put their shoulders back, face the world. You know, it's all in the posture. And she'd talk like that. And she was very involved with things like asked. She loved to question. Mm-hmm. And I get that from her. And she was very musical, and I love music. Music's a big part of my life, too. Mm-hmm. So sort of a creative, artistic, expressive side, that part that you've internalized, and those are positive things. Right. So I, I feel like because of her, I am blessed with a different way of looking at things sometimes, sometimes and I just, I'm very happy for that. Mm-hmm. You started recording your mom at some point. Yes. So I, that was, I guess, a precursor to this book. Were you right. thinking about writing this book when you were doing that? Yes. I was 40 and she was about 60. Uh-huh. And I sit with, I just moved back to Hawaii. I've always thought I was going to write this book. So I was keeping notes. I have her police record of 33 arrests. I have notes from her doctors. I have, well, I have files. So I wanted to hear her story. So I set a microphone down in those days, several years ago. And I said, I'm only here, mother, I always called her mother, to hear your story. I want your story. She must have loved that. Oh, she did. <laughs> oh, she went, she, she talked for five hours. But, <laughs> but uh, she said, oh, Sharon, I'm so glad you're going to write this book. Now, tell them about this one. Don't forget this story. Don't forget that story. And one of my favorite stories was, uh, she had a lot of them, was she loved, well, she loved to go naked. So she lived on the ocean in Neo Valley. The guys next door had just bought the house, and they got tired of seeing her on the beach naked. You know, they just got tired of it. So they took her into her y- their yard, and they p- 
they strapped her to a tree, you know, backwards, <sighs> her hands in the back and, you know, facing. And they strapped her to the tree, and they spread honey all over her body. And she said, oh, Sharon, it was so much fun. They spread <laughs> oh, honey, and they decorated her with leaves and things, and she's just smiling and smiling. And, and then there happened to be a psychologist living around the corner, and he was walking by the beach. He got mad, and he said, untie that woman. You're torturing her. And he got really mad. And my mother looked at him and said, shut up. We're having fun. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, oh, and my then gosh. the guys, the men that were trying to decorate her and play with her, they just said, oh, they just gave up. Oh, they untied her. And they said, okay. But she just, she was, um, she was <laughs> different. <laughs> yeah. and, and she regaled in telling you that story, I, I imagine. Oh. oh, yeah. She loved it. She loved yeah. that story among others, like going to the nudist camp on the North Shore and mm-hmm. being chosen the queen and... And just on and on and on. Did your, did your uh, reasons for writing the book or how you felt about it change over the years? Yes. I was going to write her story mm-hmm. because she was so outrageous. Like one person said she lived so out loud. She was well known for running the marathon naked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I dated a policeman at one time. And, oh, there goes a naked lady on Kalani <laughs> Aneoli. And then it comes over the speaker. Oh, yeah, that's just Mrs. Hicks again. You know, all that kind of stuff. So I just kept notes. And as I was writing the story, I was talking to someone who helped people write. And he just looked at me and he said, but Sharon, uh, how did you feel? Yeah. I said, what are you talking about? He says, what about you? And I said, well, what about me? I'm perfect. <laughs> he said, no, what about you? Where were you sitting at the anniversary party? You're 10 years old. What were you wearing? What were your hands doing? Where were your feet? What were you looking at when they came to Carter off? What were you thinking? What about you? And mm-hmm. I said, well, this is Mother's story. And they said, no, 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 no. It's your story because you cannot get into her mind. Mm-hmm. you got to write it from a daughter's perspective. So I rewrote everything as a daughter, and that was hard to do. Because before it was more objective, oh, this is her story. That's out there. But when, it, when you internalize it and you say, well, what, how did you feel about that? Yeah. And I have to say, Sharon, that's what I love about your memoir. That's the best part of it is the fact that it's coming from your perspective about your mother, just the feelings that you were having, the perceptions you had, mm-hmm. all the times that you, were, you felt let down and everything that you went through makes it just the perfect, perfect memoir. Oh, and so I'm you. so glad that you had that guidance and then redid it from that point of view because that's what really makes it an amazing memoir to me oh thank you i had a great review too by a psychiatrist from university of tennessee Mm -hmm. medical school and he said he called his review just another manic mom day (laughs) and he did say that i captured the manic mind he said if you want to read something about the manic mind you got to read Sharon's book. One thing I did in the writing, too, is I, I'm not an expert in mental illness, so I don't diagnose. I, don't, I just report the story right. and how I felt and how she was. I don't know what a manic mind is. I just know my mother. Yeah, I, that's also something I really liked about the book is that you didn't spend too much time trying to be clinical. Yeah. Right. You, you <laughs> just talked about your experience with your mom, and that's what makes it just so moving and so easy to connect with the story. Toward the end, you talk about the time around when your mother is dying and she passes away, and it seems to be that's toward the end of the book, and it's a very moving 
part. Can you tell us a little bit about that period for you? Yes, we, they called us from Ann Pearl. She was out in Ann Pearl and Connie Ewing, and they said she's about ready to die. And uh, my daughter and I ran out to see her. She actually had just passed away. We missed that. But just before that, I would visit her a few times. And she said to me, she said, Sharon, this isn't what I thought it was going to be like. And I said, what do you mean? She said, it's shit. Mm. It's just plain shit. You know, <laughs> I don't know. What, mm. In her mind, she had felt like she had control of her death. Mm. You know, she was going to take the hemlock. She was going to say the time. She was in charge of her death. And I thought that was very interesting because maybe she wasn't in charge of her life. That she, she was obsessed with death. Because my brother and I went to her when she when uh, she was about in the 70s, and we sat down there and said, Now, Mother, uh, we want to know from you now, if you are not able in any way to tell us what you want in your later years, tell us now. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it there you need done, you know, because you might lose your capacity later on. And she said, the hell I will. You guys get out of here. You're <laughs> shit, you know. So <laughs> right. my brother and I went with good intentions. But she used to call us parasites a lot. You just want my money. You don't get out of here. You know? So we left. So the, it towards her end, it was awful. She just said, I just, it's just shit. It's not mm-hmm. like what I wanted. And then, I, then that's when I suggested, why don't you take the hemlock? <laughs> and mm-hmm. then she said, oh, no. She perked up. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Mm-hmm. But when she passed away, it was relief. And it was sad. You know, we never did have the relationship I wanted, but I never would have. I just had to let go of trying. It was a, it was a relief. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was an, actually a relief, I get to say. Mm-hmm. But I did learn a lot about myself, and I grew to love her mm-hmm. after I wrote the book. What, what was it about writing the book and getting to that point that got you to that point where you could love her and... <laughs> Another review that was written about my book said I captured the history of mental illness from the 1940s to the 19 to the year 2000. It was mm-hmm. 60 years. 1940s, she had no rights, and there was just learning, I guess, a lot. You know more about this than I do, but she was a guinea pig. She called herself. Mm. You know, there was talk of lobotomy and all the shock treatments and in and out of mental hospitals and what, what are we going to do with her and all that kind of stuff. And then I thought, my gosh, she she was a victim. Mm -hmm. An interesting thing she always used to tell me is victim equals volunteer. Mm. You volunteer to be a victim. You know, she'd come on real strong. Mm -hmm. And yet herself, she was a victim. She really Mm -hmm. was of the system. And then I would see how she really wanted to be something, but she couldn't. She couldn't work. Mm -hmm. She never know what she was going to feel like the next day. So there was no self-accomplishment. She wanted so much to do something, but she couldn't. She never joined PTA or clubs or any community things. And I always thought that was such a waste. Mm. I felt felt sorry for her. I felt, oh, this is a little girl from Utah, abused by her older brother. Her dad died when she was seven. She's hiding under the house because she and her younger brother are hiding under the house. They don't want to see the dead body. In those days, they put the dead body on the mm-hmm. dining room table. They cover it with roses so it doesn't smell. And all her life, she couldn't stand roses, you know, covered it with roses. The family, p- neighbors would come in. And she thought it was a party, but she was met. Her, she was only seven mm-hmm. and, uh, and very, very poor. 
and I just I just felt sorry for her, mm-hmm. and yeah, I grew to love her. Yeah, I could tell you really developed a real sense of compassion right. and empathy for her. It must have been hard for you to get to that point with everything that you had been through in your life. And when I spoke at the yeah. women's prison not too long ago here in uh, Kailua, or Kaneohe, wherever it is, <laughs> it's kind of in the middle. Right. <laughs> I was talking about my mother and the anniversary party and her different things that she did. And one of the ladies at the women's prison asked me, well, were you ever mad at your mom? And I said, yes, I was. Mm-hmm. She didn't take her meds. I always felt she chose not to be a mom. Mm-hmm. She was a mother. She never chose to be a mom. She never took her meds. And I looked up at the women, and some of the women were crying because mm. I know they're there because of some mental issues, and maybe they're not taking medication. Of course, medication's different today. But in those days, I, I told them, I, said, I was mad at her for not taking her meds, for not being a mom to me. Sure. I, I, I bet a number of those women probably were moms, too, that were in the correctional facility. Yes, and, and they had, and they read my book, and they were yeah. so excited to meet with me. So I, I feel good about doing that. Uh-huh. So do you go around doing uh, presentations on your book and talks? Uh, what what, what yes. are you up to these days well, with I, your book? I've been on Long Story Short, um, and Leslie Wilcox was so cute. She, she didn't even say hi. She just said, Sharon, you kept me up all night. <laughs> she had my book in her hand. I couldn't sleep. It's hard to put it down. <laughs> I remember your mom on Kalani on Eoli. Oh. <laughs> I know, I know her, you know. But that was quite an experience. And then I've spoken at Rotaries and different places and mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. clubs. And mm-hmm. to me it's it's very interesting. And one of the most interesting groups I ever spoke to was in Kaneohe, the an elderly group. Some of them had been nurses up at the Kaneohe. Mm-hmm. And when I said, my mother's crazy and I'm perfect, it upset a few of those nurses. They came up afterwards and said, Sharon, you don't call her crazy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really nice. They did. I said, yeah, I said, I write. You're, you're right. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I guess things change over time right. with the terminology people use and what's politically correct. I know. But she was hard. She was a hard, hard mother for mm-hmm. you to grow up with and that clearly shows with example after example that you illustrate in the book. Thank you. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's any other last wisdom you can share with what you learned about your life writing the book about having a mother with mental illness, uh, being a daughter, going through that. Anything else that you can think of that would be you'd like to share? To me, mental illness is so elusive. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to live with. And you do have to separate yourself from it. That's how I survived. It's, it's you can't get caught up in it. That's one way of I'm thinking of it is like being on a roller coaster. You don't ride the roller coaster. You step off and you watch it. Yeah. Because I couldn't let her drag me down. And I had to separate myself from that. That's really the sense I got when I was reading the last sections of the book, like when you're recording your mom and you're hearing her stories, it's almost like you're telling yourself, I'm not going to react. I'm going to let her talk. I'm not going to become emotionally engaged in this. It's almost like you took a step outside of yourself and started seeing your mother, I don't know, a little bit more objectively. Yes. That's the sense I got. I guess that was my survival skill. Yeah. I couldn't get caught up in it. I, I didn't have the luxury either. I had I was a working mom with children at home, right. games to go to, turning a company around and busy working. 
So I just couldn't. And I told her that once. I said, Mother, I can't be around you. You're too negative. And she said, okay. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I would say is it is elusive, and I don't know what to say to people except it's not you. Mm-hmm. I think that's it's, very, very wise words. And you have to kind of let go of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me today. And oh, thank you. Sharing about your book. Uh, Sharon Hicks, author of How Do You Grab a Naked Lady? Highly recommended. It. It's just a very engaging read. It'll probably keep you up all night without <laughs> being able to put it down. That's how I felt when I read it. On my website, I'll post this podcast, which will be available there to access. And I have an accompanying blog that I write. I'll write a little bit about our interview today and also make some links available for being able to get the book. Oh, thank you. Again, highly recommend it. Thanks again for coming on, Sharon. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.